there for us. Um, we, we do pray for you this morning that you will, through your Holy Spirit, lead us and guide us. Open our hearts, open our minds to what you want us to hear and see through your wonderful word. Um, I do pray for myself and that uh, uh, you will just speak through me. Um, allow me not to get in your way. In your name I pray. Amen. How's everybody doing this morning? It's uh, starting to feel more and more like winter out there. Well, if you've been uh, following along in our reading plan, we are in Judges, Judges chapter 3. So if you'd like to turn there, please uh, open your Bibles and turn to Judges chapter 3. And... uh, one of the reasons that this is actually on the reading plan is because this is probably my favorite Old Testament story. So maybe um, of, about Ehud, about middle of the chapter 3. So it is partly my fault that this is on the reading plan. <laughs> How many of you guys have ever, ever heard of Ehud before, before the reading plan? Anybody ever read about that before? And, um, you know, one of my... Uh, as I was venting off the elders one day at one of our elders meetings way last year, it was like, no one talks about this story, and this story is awesome. Um, Braveheart has absolutely nothing on this story whatsoever, and uh, they remembered that, and they put that in the reading plan, and they also gave me the privilege of being able to speak about it, too, so I'm um, very thankful for that. So um, let's, uh, let's go to chapter... 3, verse 1, we're going to start there. Um, I want to read the first uh, six verses there, and then we'll uh, kind of move into the, the, the different judges here. I just want to make some observations and then, um, then um, uh, make some points here. So um, if you want to follow along, uh, please do so. These are the nations the Lord left to test all those Israelites who had not experienced any of the wars in Canaan. He did this only to teach warfare to the descendants of the Israelites who had not yet had previous battle experience. The five rulers of the Philistines, all the Canaanites, the Sinaites, and the Hivites living in the Lebanon mountains from Mount Baal, Hiram, to Lebo, Hamath. They were left to test the Israelites to see whether they would obey the Lord's commandments, which he had given their forefathers through Moses. The Israelites lived among the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Pisites, uh, Hivites, and Jebusites. They took their daughters in marriage and gave their own daughters to their sons and served their gods. Once again, let me pray, and then we will get into um, the scripture here. Father God, once again, we thank you so much. Um, and once again, I just pray that your Holy Spirit will lead us and guide us, open our hearts, open our minds to what you want us to hear and see. In your name I pray, amen. So we start off, and we, um, I think uh, Taylor was out here last week, Eric was out at the theater last week uh, preaching at the beginning of this, and we saw where the Israelites came into the, into the promised land, and um, we saw that there was, there was some issues going on with the Israelites themselves, and there's some direct consequences of those issues that um, uh, we see even coming into the promised land. You know, God gives them this land, um, promised it from the, from the get-go, 
right, from the beginning of time uh, with, with Abraham. And we see this, this coming in, and the Israelites just kind of messed it up, right? Every step of the way, the Israelites seem to um, just kind of fumble the ball, if you will. And um, we, uh, we read this, and we're like, good grief. Those guys just can't seem to get it together at times, right? And we are very hard on them at times. I know I have been in the past. Uh, but then when I start examining my own life, comparing and contrasting that, I fumble the ball a lot myself. I fumble the ball a lot myself. And yet God, who is gracious, who is merciful, who is always there, is continually being faithful to my life even when I have not been faithful to him. And that's truly what's amazing about God, is that he is gracious, he is merciful, he, is, you know, he, he, he has done all these things for us, and yet even when I mess things up along the way, right, even when I, I screw up big time, God is always there. God is always there, and he's always, he's always directing me, and he's always... Uh, doing things in my own life, and uh, this is this is exactly what is going on with the Israelites. Um, you know them as a people, you know, and I'm sure even when when they did great sin in their lives, there were still pockets of people in Israel that were following him as they should have. However, the culture of Israel seemed to waver and go way off kilter, and every single time that happened we see where God allows them to go into captivity. We see them um, as they're, they're in the promised land. These are the things that God has get, you know, he has granted them this promised land, and yet at the same time, in this promised land, we see this. There's some nations left here, right, to test Israel. And I want to get into that here in, in, a, in a second, what that looks like. But... Um, I just want to kind of look at the, the different judges here that within the chapter 3 here. Um, Othniel um, is the first judge that comes on the scene. And we see that um, Israel does, does great evil in the eyes of the Lord. And they're put into captivity. This is in, in uh, verse 7. And it actually says the anger of the Lord burned against the Israelites. And he handed them over to his enemies. And what happens? Well, they're in captivity under, uh, under, under this, this enemy of God for eight years. And they eventually cry out. And what happens? God raises up a judge, or if you really want to get down to the nooks and crannies, it's a deliverer. And, and when we look at judges, these are really deliverers of their people. And... Othniel is, is raised up. God uh, makes him a leader, and he leads Israel out of captivity, out of this occupation, if you will. And it says that for 40 years, they followed the Lord under Othniel. But once he died, what happened? It, it happens again. And once again, in, in verse 12, and this is where Ehud comes on the scene, Ehud, um, the story of Ehud, um, it says in verse 12, once again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And because they did this evil, the Lord gave them over to Eglon, the king of the Moabites. And we see where 
this king actually gathers a force against Israel and he comes in and he conquers them. And interestingly enough, you know, they, uh, he set up camp at the city of Palms is what it says in, in my, uh, in my uh, book in the NIV here. Um, but does anybody know what city that actually is? It's Jericho, right? And, you know, and this is, this is what's ironic about it. Jericho had been flattened for how many years prior to this? They came in and conquered it, and it was, it was done and over with, right? Well, something, something about this, in, in my mind, is that it's almost like a, a sore that has come up to the, up the top. And once again, it is festered, and there it is. And here's a city that the, uh, this, this king has taken up uh, as his capital. And so the Israelites were subject to his reign. And they were subject to him for 18 years this time, it says. And in that, 18 years, they cry out, they finally cry out to the Lord, and the Lord raises up a judge or a deliverer, and his name was Ehud. And what's so interesting is Ehud, Ehud, and once again, I, I, Braveheart absolutely has nothing on this story. I mean, in some of these movies that I loved growing up as a kid, this story is literally blood and guts. Literally, right? No pun intended. This story is, is, is and I, I remember reading this story as a 13-year-old, and I was like, this is awesome. <laughs> and I still have that 13-year-old living in me at times. So, uh, and so, so let's just kind of go through this. Uh, he, he, he's a left-handed guy. Now, why, why is left-handed so significant? Well, as I was reading commentary, as I was studying this week, um, left-handedness is not always appreciated throughout history and throughout cultures. Even, even in our own culture, um, I think my dad's generation, my dad's left-handed, by the way, um, they, there were some teachers that would actually take rulers and slap you on the left hand trying to make you right-handed. Um, I had the option of being left or right-handed. I, I do a lot of things left-handed. I shoot bow left-handed. I shoot rifle left-handed. I shoot shotgun left-handed. I'm left-eye dominant. If you don't know what that means, I'll, I'll explain it to you after the service. Um, but, uh, you know, I had a choice when I was, I was, I was in kindergarten. I, I'd do a lot of things right-handed. i do a lot of things left-handed. They may be right-handed. So I probably would be left-handed if I really wanted to be, yeah. But so I write with my right hand. All that being said, left-handedness is not something that's looked on like, man, you got it going on if you're left-handed. In fact, it would be looked at as a curse in certain cultures in certain times. And so some of, some of the... Some of the commentaries actually said that maybe he was deformed on the right hand. Maybe he had, you know, a wound from growing up. Um, whatever that may be, um, left-handedness was not exactly looked at as, like, something to be highly prized. And so, in this story, in this culture, I think a lot of people would say, he's a left-handed guy? How can a left-handed guy be a hero? How could he be a deliverer? And I think sometimes we look at, you know, how God works in this world, and he takes the most likely, unlikely, unlikely suspect, right? He takes the person that looks less like a hero and doesn't necessarily, you know, 
through his power, they are a hero. Once again, this is not something done just all by, his, by himself. Um, anyhow, so Ehud, he makes a, a sword, right? He makes a sword about a foot and a half long. And we see where he hides it. He straps it to his right leg. Now, this is significant because back in the day, you would have pulled the sword from the opposite side of whichever hand you were at. So, obviously, he was trained as a, as a, le- as a left-handed, um, you know, warrior, a left-handed, possibly even assassin, and he's an assassin in this story. And so, possibly, possibly when the guards were checking him out, they didn't even think, they didn't even think to look on the opposite side. And this is probably how he, he actually got the sword snuck into, snuck into the, uh, the palace. And so they, they were there to pay a tribute or a tax, if you will. And he was kind of leading this. And just at the end, he, he looks at the king and he goes, King, I have, I have the, a word for you from, from God. And the king's like, yeah, I'm kind of curious about this. And he goes, okay, come on up. And he kind of takes him into the inner courts, uh, the porch, or it depends on, on what, what version you have. There's different words for it. But basically, more into his inner, inner area, he wants to hear this. And he closes the door, and he sits down, and, and Ehud starts talking to him. And at the right moment, Ehud whips out his sword and says, God, I have a, I have a, I have a message from you from God slams it into his belly. Now, one thing I appreciate about the Bible is that it's very, at times, very graphic and detailed. And the, it goes into the fact that the king was a very fat man. <laughs> so fat that as he stuck this sword in, that the fat actually went up around the hilt of the sword, around the handle, and he couldn't even pull the sword back out. That's how fat this king is, right? And then, depending on your version, ESV kind of goes into more detail than the NIV, but basically there is, there is literally blood and guts that come out around that sword, and it, it kills the king. So Ehud runs over, locks the doors, jumps out the balcony, and goes rallies the troops. Now, what's so interesting about this story is that in the meantime, the guards, the personal guards of the king is out there waiting on the king, and they're like... Hmm, what's taking this guy so long? It says they waited to be beyond embarrassment. Some, some versions say a little bit different. But the, the, the gist of this is they think the, the king is relieving himself, going to the bathroom, and they're waiting on the king to get done. And they wait to beyond embarrassment. They go get the key. They open it up, and they find he's dead. In the meantime, Ehud has rallied the troops. They're coming out of the hills and they retake the land. And under Ehud, as a leader, as a deliverer, we see that 80 years goes by. 80 years go by of them following the Lord under Ehud, under Ehud's direction. And then, interestingly enough, after all that detail, you only have one more one more judge that's talked about, and there's only one verse, <laughs> right? Kind of weird, but one verse. It doesn't go into a lot of details, but uh, Shagmar, um, son of Anath, who struck down 600 Philistines with an ox goad, 
um, ox goad, and he, he, he too saved Israel. So it doesn't go into a whole lot of details there. But um, really, really interesting story, isn't it? And um, <laughs> as I was reading, as I was studying, I was like, man, how, how do we preach out of this? And, um, you know, God is gracious every single time I study, every single time I, uh, I ask him for wisdom on what he wants me to talk about. He gives me, he gives me things to talk about. So um, I'm very thankful for him. Um, and I just want to make some observations here. Like I said earlier, the left-handed guy, he goes in, and it's a very unlikely, unlikely scenario. Who in their right mind would have formulated this kind of plan? And I think so many times God uses things that just kind of baffle the human mind, right, for his planning. And the ultimate baffling of our minds is the cross. And we're going to look at that here down the road, but um, and later down the sermon. But this is the thing, guys. God is always working. He is always doing things. And it, it doesn't, a lot of times, in human sense, always make real great sense. Especially something like this. So if we go back, um, back into the text here uh, at the beginning... You know, it says that these nations were left to test Israel. There's two reasons that the text is, is giving why. Number one, God is wanting to teach the descendants of Israel, in verse 2, to teach warfare to them. All right? Um, so many times, if there is nothing going on in a nation... And there's no warfare, and there's, there's no reason to train for warfare. The people in the nation get very soft, right? I really do think that God wants hardened men and women with soft hearts. Not hard hearts, but at the same time, he wants to train up. He wants to raise up people. And, um, you know, Taylor spoke on this, um, you know, earlier um, last week that there was a deficit of discipleship happening in this, this, this nation. You know, and I, I think this speaks directly to that, that there has to be a reason to train. There has to be a reason for, for things that uh, the Lord to, to train and to, for people to disciple their people. Obviously, they failed in part because in, in verse 6, you look what happened. It says they took their daughters in marriage and gave their own daughters and their sons and served their gods. So there was an intermingling of this pagan, or as, as Taylor said, a Canaanite atmosphere around them, right? And so the, the uh, actual enemies of Israel were influencing Israel more than God was influencing Israel, which is totally wrong and totally against what God was wanting to do here. You know, for us, if I look at, if if I'm I'm honestly looking at the church for us, you know, left to teach for warfare, there's, um, there are things in our lives that are left at times, right? There are things in our lives, pockets of um, junk at times, 
And maybe that's externally or internally in our lives, even after we're saved, after God delivers us from our, our sin, right, that we have to deal with. Does that make sense? Or maybe I'm the only one that has to deal with junk. <laughs> you know, and, and there is actually an enemy at work against the church right now as we speak, right? There's an enemy that's against God as we speak right now. He is, you know, the, the Bible's very clear about it. He, he's roaming around like a lion waiting to devour people. Right? And, and I love, I love uh, 1 Corinthians 16, 13. If you want to go there, you're more than welcome to. But I'm, I'm just going to share that. But it's, it's Paul, in his parting words to the church there in, in Corinth, he says, be on your guard, stand firm in the faith, be men of courage. The ESV says it very well. It says the the ESV says this, be a man. <laughs> uh, be strong, do everything in love, is in verse 14. And, and sometimes I think we, we have this um, idea that um, we can't be uh, strong and be in the church at the same time. We have to, we, we kind of, uh, you know, uh, we look at Jesus kind of this like, kind of like a hippie guy that kind of walks around, he was actually pretty weak. And not, may, not, not, you know, some of us may not look at that, but there's, there's something in the popular culture that makes, and I've been, I've been just encountering that left and right at times. And, you know, God wants us to be strong in him and be um, on guard, knowing that there's an enemy that is going to be throwing darts that are going to be attacking us. And we shouldn't be surprised when this happens. But part of our job is to raise up uh, men in the faith as well. Um, West Holmes, they've had a pretty good year for football, haven't they? Are they still undefeated? No? Okay. We won't talk about the last game then. Um, what is interesting about that is... Uh, did that team just come out of nowhere and they played a really good games throughout the season? How did that team come about? That team came about because they were taught from very little on up, probably peewee football, right? Um, there was systematically things happening. Um, I know over on the east side, Highland has a very good basketball team. Why, why is that basketball team so good? Well, it's because they're trained. They're trained up. They are always constantly knowing that they've got games they're going to be playing, and they're going against an opponent, and they want to beat that opponent. And in the same way, I, I do truly believe that this is, this is what um, God had in mind for his own people and has in mind for us, is that... We are in constant battle. We are in constant battle against the evil one. And it should not surprise us when we get attacked. At the same time, we need to be raising people up in that mindset that we will get attacked. The other thing that um, this does is it, it puts deeper roots into God and, and trusting God. Um, anybody ever uh, look at a tree 
maybe a big tree and there's a windstorm that comes through and it, it gets knocked over partly because the root system was not deep enough that that root system was actually spread out and it was and that's a sign of that tree having a very easy life and what I mean by that that water was easily accessible that there wasn't much issues going on with that tree right but when that tree is being bombarded by drought when that tree is being bombarded by wind or other other things what happens it 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 makes that tree root system go deeper trying to find water it makes that tree go looking for something and it's painful at times probably I, I would imagine I don't know if a tree can feel pain but having to dig deep down in looking for water looking for nourishment looking for those these different things and I, I truly believe that if we understand that we are truly at war it's going to drive our roots deeper into God and it will allow us to have deep deep roots that are rooted in the true deliverer the other the other reason that the scripture gives is that they were there in verse 4 they were left to test the Israelites to see whether they would obey the Lord's commands which he had given to his forefathers, their forefathers through Moses and you know this is this is this is really an interesting uh, the way it, it's stated and I was as I was reading as I was praying about this a lot of times we we think testing and temptation kind of go hand in hand and the Bible is very clear James 1 it says God cannot be tempted by evil nor does he tempt anyone by evil so this is not a, a necessarily a temptation but it is a lesson I believe that you know tests only come after lessons right how many of you guys went through school you ever realize that that the teacher usually even if they give you a pop quiz there's something that's already been taught to you right and so a lot of times God is giving us tests because he's been giving us lessons and those tests are not necessarily for him because he knows everything I think I talked about that in a previous sermon but it's more the tests are more than the results are to see where we're at with God and you know that is something that in my own life I continually see I continually see these tests come up and sometimes I I pass them and sometimes I fail them miserably but at the same time God is always always doing something uh, in my life in my own heart you know I, as I was reading this I was thinking about um, it says you know he left these nations in the promised land now last week I, I really liked how Eric over the theater referenced the fact that our promised land is already here that's Jesus Jesus is our promised land it's not just waiting to get to heaven Jesus saves us in the here and now and we are rooted in him and that is who we've been promised amazingly and so if you think about this in our own lives just as Israel what are some nations quote-unquote nations that have been left in our lives 
to do those things that I just talked about, to get us prepared for warfare and for testing, testing what God's been doing. Um, you know, the one, the one amazing thing is that the war is won. The war of, of uh, you know, against Satan is totally over, right? Uh, yet we have these pockets of battles that we have to do right now. Um, anybody familiar with the Battle of New Orleans? Besides the Johnny Horton song. Once again, I may, may have a reference that is a lot older for some of you guys. But uh, the Battle of New Orleans is interesting. It came out of the War of 1812. Um, and we were battling the British. And there was actually a treaty signed. The war was over. And because of the fact that we don't, didn't have Twitter back then, we didn't have the internet, we didn't have to phones and everything else, the word to our troops and to the British troops actually didn't reach them in time. And this battle of New Orleans happened. Um, I believe Andrew Jackson was a part of that. And if you don't know anything about it, we whooped the British pretty hard. But what's interesting is that war... The War of 1812 was officially over, and yet this battle rose up. And I think in a lot of ways, we need to look at it that way, that these battles that we're fighting through the Holy Spirit, not on our own strength, because honestly, the enemy is going to kick my butt every time if I try to do it on my own strength. But these battles that we have, these nations that we are battling against in this life, once again, I'm using nations as kind of a quotation. These are things that are for our own good, that are happening for our own good. And so, what are some of these, these battles or these nations that we may have to war against in our own lives? Well, number one, I, I think suffering, right? You know, we still live in this sin-cursed world, and sin is still around us and in us at times. And so, as we're battling these things, even though that Jesus has completely won and the war is completely over, we are still battling against these things. Um, if we go to 2 Corinthians, uh, turn over to 2 Corinthians, and a lot of times we ask the question, right? Why are these things happening to us? Why, 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 why? And I think that that's a legitimate question. It's not a bad question to ask. At the same time, I think we need to ask another question. What is God doing through these situations? Because I believe, I truly believe that God is sovereign. I truly believe that God is in complete control. And I truly do believe that God uses even my own sin at times. And once again, I'm not, I'm not like giving me a pass or like saying my sin's great or anything. But he uses that at times. And so... We look at 2 Corinthians chapter 1. I'm going to start in verse 8. And Paul is starting to talk about all this stuff that was going on in his life. And, and, and I really want to hone in on verse 8. It says, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about the hardships we suffered in the providence of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that the thing we despaired, even of 
the, excuse me, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, in our hearts, we felt the sentence of death. So what's he saying here? He's like, man, things got so bad. He's not talking about committing suicide here, but he's like, I just wanted God to take me home to heaven. I just want to get out of this world. Things were so, so hard that it was far beyond our ability to endure this. How many of you have ever heard the, uh, the little phrasing that, oh, you know, God, he just won't give you more than you can, you can bear. Anybody hear that phrase? That's a lie. <laughs> Why? Because Paul says that it was far beyond his ability to endure whatever was going on in his life at this point in time. And what does this do? It says, He has delivered us from such great deadly peril, and He will deliver us. On Him we have set our hope that we, He will continue to deliver us. He basically says here that, man, we, we despaired of all these things, and that He does this so that we will rely on Him more than ourselves. That's actually a gift from God, by the way. We are, you know, the Israelites, if you look in, in Judges 3, they're crying out to God because they kind of finally come to the ends of themselves saying, God, we need you. Now, they obviously didn't learn their, learn their lessons as they, uh, through Judges, right? But how many times have that, in my own life, am I guilty of that? I just want to get out of the situation that I possibly even put myself into. And yet, God, who is great in mercy, continues continues to rescue me and continues to do things in my life. Um, if you continue in 2 Corinthians, um, once again, another, another reference here that's pretty uh, famous, if you will, or, or well-known, um, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, 7 through 10. I'm going to read that. It says, and this is, once again, Paul, Paul speaking. It says, To keep me from being conceited because of these surpassing great revelations that were given to me, there was given a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in my weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecutions and difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. It is making him more reliant on God, making him humble out of those circumstances that he is, he is going through. You know, the thorn in the flesh, we don't exactly know what it is. There's a lot of, I, there, uh, probably the most popular theory and probably the one I would, I would hold to is that it was his eyesight. Um, my personal favorite theory, and once again, I'm not agreeing with this, but I heard this from the pulpit. My personal favorite theory was it was Paul's wife, and that she was the thorn in the flesh. <laughs> once again, I don't agree with it, but it is, it is, it is and, and that was my response when I first heard it, but this guy was a firm believer in it. But all that being said is that we know that Paul, the wife, was not perfect after he came across Christ. In fact, his life probably became more complicated because he probably had all kinds of retirement set up, 
through the, the Pharisee uh, organization, right? Um, he probably uh, was, you know, um, people liked him for the most part. And when he became a follower of Jesus, when Jesus met him on the road to Damascus, zapped him, we, we have his life automatically becoming more complicated. And there are definitely reasons for that. Um, Philippians 4, you don't have to turn there, but he talks about how he has been well-fed, how he's been hungry. And all of that, he has learned contentment because of Jesus. And those are all hard lessons and tests that he was continually going through following the Lord, following Jesus. Jesus delivered him, but he had hardships, he had sufferings through those. You know, the other, the other things that I have thought about, you know, why do, why do situations happen? Why do hardships happen a lot of times? It's because of sin. And once again, there's, there's sometimes, you know, uh, we don't always understand maybe, maybe cancer or some kind of physical uh, suffering happens in our lives. However, a lot of times, suffering is brought on truly by a consequence of somebody else's sin, right? Or my own sin. And um, <clears throat> as I was thinking about this this week, I um, felt compelled to have to share something out of my own life. And I'm not going to go into a huge amount of details of what, what the situation was, except what it has, has caused me for my own life. Um, acquaintance of mine, we had, um, and this has been kind of leading up for a while, we had a disagreement. And I, I feel like, uh, you know, as disagreements go, I, I had a legitimate reason for that disagreement. Um, but the disagreement went down the road, down the hill, and went really badly, really quickly. And that person ended up making a lot of accusations against myself, a lot of accusations that were not true, um, you know, even about my wife and myself, and a lot of personal attacks that really hurt, right? And in the midst of this, um, as this person was yelling and screaming at me, I was able to try to de-escalate it. There was no de-escalation <laughs> happening. Um, this person uh, used profanities in a very artful way. Let me put it that way. And in all of this happening, I was able to hold everything together. I really do believe that God was working in my own life, right? 20 years ago, I would have nuked her. I would have nuked her. I would have I hit that button, and I would have I left my own profanity-ridden, screaming and yelling out at that person. And what's amazing is that God has done a lot of things in my own life. And this, this is, once again, this is all God. I did not react like the old man, like the old sinful nature, right? That's amazing. That's amazing. But, <laughs> so... Afterwards, right? Afterwards, this is where it gets interesting for my own life because 
Once again, I was the victim in this, right? I was the one that, that this, this wrong happened to. And in those moments, when I'm sitting there, I became very agitated in my own heart. Even though I didn't act out in the moment like I would have a long time ago, in that moment, I didn't have peace in my own heart. And I was ready, I was ready for war against her. I was ready to go against her. I was like, oh, okay, next time this happens, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do this. What, what happens if she does this? What happens if I... And I had it all formulated out in my head, right? Now, I kept... I, but at the same time, I was like, okay, God, you need to take this situation. You need to take this situation. You need to take this situation. Because I didn't have peace. Didn't have peace in my heart. About a day went by, and the Lord really convicted me. And I had to repent in my own heart. And what I ended up doing was praying for that person. Praying for that person because I, I don't know where they're at with the Lord. Were they saved? I don't know. Maybe. In the moment, it didn't look like they were saved, but guess what? There's been moments in my own life that it looks like I haven't been saved, right? But I just really broke down and I just prayed, God, do something here. Save them. If they know you, then do something. Obviously, there's something going on in their lives. And, and, and in that moment, I had peace. In that moment, I had peace. But, you know, this is the amazing thing about it is, you know, as I said, lessons and tests, lessons and tests. You know what? I passed that test 20 years ago that I would have passed, right? And a lot of times we think it's the outside, the outside that matters the most. But it really is my heart that matters the most, you know, as I, I said, I talked earlier about James. It says, you know, God can't tempt anybody. But where, do, where does temptation come from? It comes from my own heart. It comes from my own evilness. In that verse, it talks about that. I'm enticed by my own evilness, which later down the road gives birth to sin. And this is what's truly amazing about it. You know, a lot of times we, we have this picture of um, how are we tempted. We, we, we think of the Tom and Jerry cartoons where the devil's sitting on one side and the angel's sitting on the other side, Right? That can be furthest from the truth. Furthest from the truth. A lot of times, it's my own ugly heart is where my temptation is coming from. Now, I'm not saying that Satan doesn't tempt me at times or, or his demons. That, that's all true. But a lot of times, the temptation is coming from my very sinful, ugly heart. And the amazing thing is God is always wanting to systematically work that out. Um, you know, sometimes we, uh, we see people get saved and the desire for whatever, whatever sin it is, right? Maybe some, some kind of sin that has a hold on them. Maybe, maybe it's alcoholism or, or uh, porn or something like that, right? And it's so deeply rooted. And we see God deliver them from that immediately, right? Oh, my goodness, a miracle. But at times, those things are not completely delivered from them. And we often ask, well, why? Why, God? Why, why, does this, why does this person get delivered immediately and this other person, it's, it's, it's a work in progress. And I believe that if we go back directly into this, there are nations left, right? There are nations left to war against, against us. And in a lot of ways, the Holy Spirit is, is working out our... our um, for our well-being... 
in those things. And sometimes we, just as Paul talked about in the beginning here with hardships and sufferings, those things are making me more reliant on God than myself. And once again, I don't, I don't always know why things happen the way they do, but I do know that God is always in control and always doing things. Even, even when my own sin rears its ugly head, God is doing something in that. And that, that truly is amazing. That truly is amazing. Um, worship team, you're more than welcome to come on up. As I said earlier, you know, we, we look at Ehud. And like I said, that story has nothing on a brave heart, right? Um, we need to look at the, the deliverer, and that's Jesus. The story of Jesus, the fact that Jesus came to earth, fully man, fully God. In a, in a humble way, right? In a way that no one would have suspected that he was going to deliver this world from sin. He comes to earth and he, he, he's uh, through the birth of a virgin, which is unheard of still to this day. He's given birth in a barn and he lives a perfect life, which leads him to the cross. So that he can deliver you and me from our sin. Not just a repercussion from our sin, but from our sin itself. As I said earlier, you know, God is continually working on my life. You know, 20 years ago, I would have I reacted totally different than what I would now. That's the miracle of God. There's nothing in myself that could have stopped me from doing that. But yet, he still continues the work. He continue has, continually has more work to be done in my life. At the end of the day, he is my ultimate deliverer. He is who I need to follow. Have you, have you noticed in Judges, if we go back to Judges, what happens when the judge dies? People fall back into sin, right? Even, even as a reference to Moses, right? That the, the law that was given from their descendants to Moses... What happens? When, when Moses just kind of disappeared for a little bit, going up to the mountain for the Ten Commandments, what happens? Hey, I got a great idea. We'll go ahead and worship a golden calf that we make. And we may say, how does that work? But guess what? There are golden calves in my life everywhere I look, if I'm not careful. I have to be so well aware of how awful my heart is. And so we need to be completely dependent on Jesus, completely following Jesus. Yes, he's my deliverer, but he's also my leader. He's also the person that I need to follow at every given moment. He's not dead. Jesus is not dead, and that's the good news, that we can follow him where he's at. He is... He is the Bible says he's at the right hand of God interceding for us. That's good news. And he, but he, we have the Holy Spirit that lives in us. And through the Holy Spirit, we are able to follow him. 
We obviously don't deserve the mercy, just like the Israelites. We don't deserve being delivered from our sin, yet God, God did that. Ehud's an awesome story, but the cross is even more awesome. Let's, let's not take for granted the deliverer or the delivery that we have out of sin. Let's keep our eyes on Jesus and let's follow him. Uh, let me pray. Father God, we thank you. We thank you so much for all the amazing things you've done in our lives, the amazing things you've done in my life. Um, I do want to say that... I, it is amazing that you have not given up on me um, when you rightfully should. Um, I do pray that you will just continually lead us and, and guide us here as a church, um, lead us and guide us uh, corporately and individually. Um, we need you, but more importantly, we want you as well. And um, just, just lead us. We just pray that your will be done. In your name I pray. Amen.